Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. You've become a very rich guy on paper. Does that allow you to do things? We're still in the same house we have been in for the last 12 years. We see it as a real opportunity to be able to help the world, help other people build their businesses if we want to do do investment, but really putting that money to good use, which isn't buying more stuff for our family. On today's episode, part two of my chat with Cameron Adams. Cameron's the co-founder, along with Melanie Perkins and Cliff Obrecht, of Canva, the little Sydney-based startup they've built into a global powerhouse in less than eight years. Canva offers all sorts of online design tools like logos, illustrations, font types, templates, even photos to help anyone and everyone to be visually creative. In the past few years, Canva has doubled in size every year and Cameron tells me they're on track to hit $500 million in revenue this year. We began by talking about achieving unicorn status. That's a US $1 billion valuation. And in June 2020, the latest funding round of venture capital backing values Canva at $8.7 billion Australian dollars. You made unicorn status, tech unicorn status, I think in early 2018 when Canva was valued at over $1 billion US dollars. The most recent funding round of June 2020, you raised $87 million, which valued Canva at $8.7 billion Australian dollars. I mean, how did that feel to sort of get unicorn status? And the the valuation is kind of important, even though it's only on paper, isn't it? Yeah, it's a really achieving unicorn status was interesting. I think because yeah, it doesn't happen overnight for us. Whereas in the media, no. it kind of happens overnight, and it's a big announcement, and. People are like, wow, overnight you're worth a billion dollars. And that's definitely the vibe that you get from people. But for us, it was a six-year journey. And as you mentioned, there have been lots of hurdles and trip-ups along the way and, and things that have gone right and things that have gone wrong. So getting there, I think, is not a massive moment of celebration for us, but it is a nice validation that we're on the right path. And a billion dollars sounds like a lot for the valuation of a company, but you also know that we've got a really long way to go. There's so many things we want to do, so many different types of products we want to create. There's so many people in the world who haven't heard of Canva that could really get value out of it. And taking this product to them, adapting the product to their needs, still like a massive journey that we've, we've got to go on. So it's a, nice, it's a nice little moment to sit back and give yourself a pat on the back. But really, for us, it's still the first step in a long journey. Rick Baker from Blackbird Ventures, one of your early and still strong investors, told the AFR just a few weeks ago that you had doubled revenue since your previous funding round in October 2019. You've talked about doubling everything is your aim. That's doubling your revenue in, what, eight months and that your revenue run rate was $250 million back then in October 18, uh, 2019, sorry, has it doubled from that figure? Uh, yeah, it's gotten pretty close. Wow. By the time the year comes around, 
Our Canva Pro team has done so much iteration on the product and has taken it through leaps and bounds in terms of the value that we give people. So we've recently shipped this thing called Pro Unlimited, which means you get access to 60 million different photos and illustrations that are in our library as soon as you pay for Canva Pro, which was a big change. Prior to that, we only had, I think it was like 5 million elements that people could access. So unlocking that has opened the floodgates. We've had so many people sign up since then, and particularly even throughout this COVID period, which when it started, we were obviously worried about what it was going to do and whether it would affect us. But we've seen a whole lot more people coming into Canva, taking advantage of these new features that we've unlocked, And it's really fueled a new stage of growth for us. So just to digress slightly, in that sense, doesn't Canva do away with the need for incredibly skilled creators, people like you, graphic designers, those sorts of people? I mean, Canva is in conflict with the industry of professional designers. Is that how you see it? And how do they feel about Canva? No, we definitely don't. We definitely don't see it that way. We see Canva as unlocking pent-up demand that gets service that was never getting service before. There obviously is a lot of stuff that graphic designers do yeah. and, and they still do. And there's an incredible amount of value they add into you know building products, building businesses. And we've seen graphic designers still have that place. What Canva does is it opens up that design and that collaboration between designers a lot more. And it gives people who never would have thought about design, never would have engaged with graphic design and the ability to access great design and start communicating their ideas, which is really important for us as a mission because there's so many people out there with great ideas that don't get the opportunity to try them out, to put them into action. And Canva is just one small step in them achieving that, but it's often a really important step. Um, and we've seen people who have started their first business on Canva, have grown their revenues to millions of dollars. We've seen charities grow their donor base through Canva. And we've seen personal stories like people who have found their birth mother through a Canva design that they shared on social media. So it has this massive impact. And if Canva didn't exist, those people wouldn't have had that outlet. Can we just go back a step further briefly? You grew up in Mont Albert, which I think is next to Box Hill in Melbourne's eastern suburbs. Yeah, really, really close. Yeah, in a mixed heritage household. Is that correct? Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah, so my mum was Chinese and my dad was typical Caucasian Australian. So you were born here? I was born in Melbourne, yeah, yep. and grew up there and pretty much lived there for most of my life for the first 27 years. I ended up moving to Sydney to be with my girlfriend, my now wife, and we've been there for 13 years now. So were you always interested in either computers or were you a drawer? Were you a creative kid? Yeah, I could never make up my mind. So computers <laughs> definitely played a big part in it. My dad owned a computer store. Oh, really? My brother and I would spend hours there, like behind the wall that's at the back of the store, just fiddling around with computers, stealing computer games from the shelves in the front room and loading them onto the computers and playing them. (laughs) Um, But I also had quite a creative streak. So I loved drawing. I was constantly drawing through primary school. I think the first money I actually made off someone was from drawing a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle comic that they wanted to buy off me. So that's how I made my first $2. 
Amazing. But I didn't quite pursue that that creative vein. So through high school, I did more mathematics and legal studies and a bunch of stuff like that. So formally, I didn't pursue it, but I still, I still actually had a sideline business going in design and graphic design and made a bunch of designs for the kids around the schools. But I ended up getting decent marks and went off to do law and computer science at Melbourne University. The law part, you know, I had the marks for it impressed my mum, so might as well do it. But it was never something I was super interested in. Didn't get particularly good grades at law. Managed to graduate, but never went into the legal profession. But that computer science background really helped me. Even though I never became a formal software engineer, I did go on to start my own web design business, creating websites, and both designing them up and coding them up. So Cameron, I know it's a little bit of a jump, but you know, you got to work at Google. What was working at Google like? And was that in Sydney? And you say you worked with your old boss, Lars Rasmussen was your old boss. Now he was at Google Maps though, wasn't he? But you worked on this sort of secret new product called Google Wave. Yeah, I can't remember what year Google Maps launched. It must have been 2001, 2002. Yeah, I think it was 2002, something like that. Yeah, and Lars, you know, he started that with his brother and a couple of their other mates. Yeah, Noel Gordon and a few others. Noel and Stephen Ma. And they pretty much built out the engineering office in Sydney. So prior to that, they had a few salespeople in Sydney at the Google office. Uh, but no real product presence. And the Maps guys wanted to stay in Sydney. So they kind of built the office around them. And over the years, the Google office grew. I think at the time, so 2007 was when I first met Lars. And they had spent five years on Maps. Maps had become this massive beast inside Google, like a groundbreaking product and a really rapidly growing one. And the team had grown as well. So I don't know how big the size of Maps was, but it would have been hundreds of people by that stage. And with a company like Google, the tendency is for that product team to move. So the locus of control for Maps had moved to Mountain View near San Francisco in California. So Lars and his team, you know, the three guys he founded it with were looking for the next thing they wanted to work on. And they'd always had this idea for this thing, which ended up being Google Wave, which is like a really forward thinking way of collaborating on documents, communicating with people. It's kind of a mix of email, real-time chat, Slack, Google Docs, and a whole bunch of other stuff. It was like a massive, massive project, a massive product. And when I met Lars, they were still needing to prove it. So they had this idea, but Larry and Sergey and Eric, who was CEO at the time, so Larry and Sergey, the two founders of Google, they were running Google and Lars had approached them with this idea and they were like, sounds great, make us a prototype, we'll see what it looks like. So Lars was looking for someone to help him with the design of the product because they had brilliant technical people to work on it, but no one who could really bring it together into a coherent experience. And I'd actually applied to Google like heaps of times over the years and always got turned down because I wasn't a good enough engineer and they never employed designers, which is why they were looking for a contract designer. Really? Right. And that's when I met Lars and I went into the office the first day. I didn't know what I was signing up for really. 
They took me over to this super secret room that was all blacked out. <laughs> and inside was Lars, his brother Jens, um, and two other engineers. And they were just starting, or they'd been building the product for a while, but in a very raw state, um, just getting the functionality going. And for the next six months, I worked on the, the design, brought it together into a, into a product. And we ended up taking that thing, well, Lars did, and he took it over to Mountain View and demoed it for Larry, Sergey, and Eric. And they really loved it. And they gave it the green light. And they also told Lars to hire whoever the designer was that hired the product. Oh, cool. That was my, <laughs> that was that was you. my back door into Google without ever actually having to interview. But the team, like, uh, 10 times overnight, so they immediately got 40 engineers working on the product. Mm, and we, we worked on it for the next four years. You know, that was a massive wild ride. I was very fortunate to be in there learning about everything that went on, what to do right, what to do wrong. So what happened to Google Wave? It launched. It was a, it was a really hard product to build technically and experience-wise, and it had so much promise in it and so many good ideas in it but it didn't ultimately manage to coalesce into something that people understood or found useful. Okay. Like solve, to your point earlier, solve that problem or that pain point that they were having. Yeah. Okay. So I was going to ask you, what lessons do you reckon? You said it was a fantastic wild ride. It must have been amazing to work for such an innovative, really a fantastic and groundbreaking company and for that particular guy, Lars Rasmussen and his little team. But what lessons do you reckon you brought from the Google culture or experience to Canva? The lessons I learned were, well, one, to not focus so intensely on the engineering aspect. So engineering is obviously a hugely important part of building a product, but it's not the only thing that goes into building a product. So thinking about the design of the experience and also the business nature of the product, like needing something that can actually support itself, make money and ultimately generate revenue is super important. Being able to really clearly communicate what your product is and the problem that it solves. So like really connecting with your customers and your user base and them being able to go, yes, this is the product for me and it's extremely valuable for what I need to do. And then the other part I think was the pressure of building a product that needs 10 million people to start using it overnight, which is pretty much oh. what you need what you need when you're at Google because of the scale of the company, the types of other products that it has, and the success that you need there is very different to what you need as a very small startup with only three people in it. So trying to build that startup experience inside a place like Google just adds a whole lot more problems than it does necessarily help you. Are they extraordinary brains, these people? Are they creative thinkers? What is it about Lars that's special? And you're probably much the same, but you can talk about him instead of yourself. I think, yes, him and his brother are both incredibly creative. I think there's also this idea that you can do it. Like It's possible to tackle this huge dream, break it down into bits that you can start working on and ultimately build out something that is world-changing. So this idea that you, you can do something that's almost impossible, that definitely is something that you need as an entrepreneur, as someone who's starting a startup like that. Yeah, I think for them also, it's like this marriage of creativity and engineering, 
which is why they did really well at Google because that is the heartbeat of Google. It's like understanding technology and how you can creatively apply that to the world. Yeah, extraordinary. So have you tried to make that creative way of thinking and harnessing technology in that way as a value at Canva? Do you have business mottos and values there? Yeah, we you know, I've definitely pulled a lot from that experience at Google and they Google thinks a lot very creatively in an engineering sense and they have, you know, drastically improved their design over the last few years as well. But coming into Canva, I wanted to bring that equal balance between the design of the experience and the engineering of the technology. And I think that's something we've balanced really well over the years. We do look for those particular types of people at the company and we really value people who can bring those ideas in and then execute upon them. And that execution part is really critical because lots of people have great ideas and lots of people have lots of ideas, but understanding the right idea to pursue and being tenacious enough to see it through to the end is probably the more key thing. So just to sort of go off to the side for a bit, Canva is still growing through the COVID crisis. As I understand it, you've still been hiring people. You are still hiring people? Yeah, definitely still hiring. So Wow. So what are you looking for? We've got a massive need for engineers and not enough people to fill the seats. Okay. So what sort of people do you want? Uh, people across you know all aspects of the company. So Engineers make up a lot of our staff and they're like the biggest group of specialists at Canva. Right. And do they have to be PhDs? Do they have to be, you know, top, top 1% of uh, engineering brains? No, we've got people from all sorts of different walks of life. So we do have people that came from a very traditional university background and do have PhDs. We also have people who never went to university. We've got one person who joined us before even graduating high school, I'm pretty sure. So we have people of all sorts of different experiences, different backgrounds, some formal, some informal. What we really look for is that ability to problem solve and, you know, really strong love of their craft. So whether that's an engineer who understands really technical problems and can figure out ways to solve them or a designer who can really think about our customers and our users and create an experience that meets their needs, or a product manager who's really great at bringing together teams, finding the right problem to solve, and helping the engineers and the designers through that process. We're always looking for people who can just tackle those pretty independently and with a high degree of collaboration. Cameron, your latest funding round just finished a couple of weeks ago in late June, raised $87 million. The market valued the company at $8.7 billion Australian dollars, which is massive. Correct me if I'm wrong, does that mean that you kind of gave away 1% of the company in that round? Uh, let me just do the maths. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, okay. So does that mean that you three founders still own roughly just over 50 towards 60% of the company and other investors own the rest? 
can't remember what the exact figure is, but yeah, we still have uh, strong control of the company. Okay. Now, I know it's an often it's a sensitive topic and I'm not prying, but how do you feel that you're now in the media as I saw a headline, the third homegrown billionaire that Canva has produced and, you know, you individually have climbed up the rich list. How do you kind of comprehend and deal with that wealth side of personally even of, you know, growing this extraordinary company? We, we try not to focus on it too much. Like it is a real blessing, but I mean, all of that's on paper. It's not like we have of course. billions of billions of dollars at our disposal. And most of those new, news articles have no idea how much of our shareholding is or how much it's worth. So we take that with a grain of salt. And I personally just try not to engage with it. They can kind of put out their speculation and write whatever they want. For us, you know, we still focus essentially on the problem of Canva. We don't focus on the returns, mm. particularly on the monetary returns. But I suppose it, it just leads to that sort of thought about, you know, you graduated, what, in 2001? So I guess, does that mean in like 19 years, well, let's not call it a billion, but you've become a very rich guy on paper. Does that allow you to do things, to have freedom, to invest in the things you want to invest in, whether they be ideas or causes or, you know, houses or whatever? Yeah, it certainly gives you the mental freedom not to have to worry about where your food's coming from or, you know, the shelter that you put over your over your head. We're still in the same house we have been in for the last 12 years. We still drive a pretty crappy Kia car. <laughs> I think for us, it's an opportunity. So, you know, we're not possibly going to spend any amount of that money, but we see it as a real opportunity to be able to help the world, mm. help other people build their businesses if we want to do, do investment. But really putting that money to good use, which isn't buying more stuff for our family, it's you know, putting it towards projects that are helping developing nations or projects that can help improve equality here in Australia. We're constantly, one of our values, our cultural values at Canva is to be a force for good. And in line with that, we have recently set up a Canva Foundation and that's off the back of something called the Pledge 1% Movement, which both Atlassian and Salesforce partake in and help set up and the idea of that is that you take 1% of your company's equity, 1% of the revenue, 1% of time, and 1% of product, and you put that towards philanthropic efforts. And we're keenly focusing on that at the moment. We've set up the foundation and we've, we've started diverting our funds towards that. And to date, we've put that towards bushfire relief, as you know, Australia experienced very early in 2020. It almost seems like years ago now, given that we're going through COVID, but there's still a lot of people suffering from the damage that was done through those bushfires. And we also put it to things like COVID. We've backed a whole bunch of health organizations that communicating information to, to everyone around the world. And we're also looking at how we can help in the education space as well, because that's really important to us. So we set up Canva for Education, which gives Canva entirely away entirely for free to teachers and students 
And off the back of that, we're also looking at how we can help in other areas of education, primarily in bringing access to education for people who wouldn't ordinarily get it. That's just extraordinary. Congratulations on that. So, look, I'm just asking all my guests a couple of these questions. I guess off the back of that, what are you obsessed about at the moment? Obsessed about? Oh, that's an interesting question. A cause, a book, a podcast, an issue? Uh, On the book side, I have gotten back into fiction a lot and I've been reading quite a few books by this guy called Blake Crouch. He does really good new science fiction, uh, which involves like quantum theory and multiverses, which is pretty cool. I am also obsessing about climate change and renewable energy and how we can improve that and kind of drive the change that government hasn't been able to drive to date. And yeah, a lot of my time is also spent at Canva thinking about this foundation and the positive impact we can have and particularly the kind of culture that companies need to set that up and drive that through their staff, make sure that everyone at Canva understands it, contributes to it and understands the impact that we're having. What's the biggest thing you've learned along your Canva journey? Yeah, I'd say to to dream big. I think dreaming big gives you this vision that you can get other people involved in and that can inspire people to rally around something that would be impossible by yourself. And it's really important to do that because otherwise you won't be able to achieve something momentous and bringing people along with you on the journey is the only way that you're actually going to succeed. Wow. Getting out of COVID, where do you want Canva to be in two years, five years? Are you thinking of going public? Do you think it'll be a vastly different organisation sort of even after COVID? Directly after COVID, we've learned a lot about remote working. Obviously, everyone's been working remotely for the past three months, and we really rapidly adapted to that and helped all our staff figure out their working from home arrangements and how to work safely and productively. And yeah, prior to that, we didn't do a lot of remote work. We were very focused on the office and the physical environment. So we're treating this as a big experimental phase. We have opened up the office, but no one is required to go in, and we have said, Feel free to work from home however long you like, at least until the end of the year, and then we'll reassess and see how it's going. So trying things out, really trying to build that sense of community within the company, even virtually through all the Zoom meetings and all the calendar invites that you have. And we have a we do have a really strong culture at Canva, something that we pride ourselves on and that attracts a lot of people. Do you still have lunch all together somehow? Uh, somehow. We've, we've got lots of Zoom lunches that people have arranged. People have been really creative and flexible with how they've continued to maintain those connections with everyone at work. We don't have like a 500-person Zoom lunch, but no. every week we do have an all-hands-on Zoom, which is really well-coordinated and Pretty much everyone in the company turns up to that. So in a sense, we are every Tuesday we have lunch together. But we have looked at all the teams and the different groups inside Canberra and, and made sure that we really support them in helping them keep their teams together and have people still communicating with one another, building those relationships and staying really closely bonded. Any thoughts about going public? Nothing, nothing particularly driving us at the moment. You know, we're still growing immensely. If it keeps doubling at the rate it is, then 
there's no real pressure for us to, to go into the stock market. Now, you're already in, you've translated Canva into, what, 130 different languages. How much further can you go on that side of things in the next three to five years? Getting into different languages was a really big mission for us. We kind of embarked upon that in 2016 and we hit 100 languages at the end of 2017. And for us, the drive for that has been twofold. One is, you know, it lets you grow in a much bigger way. So just relying on people who can speak English immediately carves off the majority of the world that could never use Canva. But two, if we think about our mission as empowering the world to design, it's really important to us that people are able to access the product and accessing the product means they have a device they can access it on. It has the language that they speak so they can actually use the product and it has all the content that they need to use Canva in their part of the world, which means lots of different things in different countries. So the types of photography that we like in Australia or the US or the UK is very different to people in Brazil or Russia or Indonesia. Um, the types of design templates they need is very different. Looking at the Brazilian market, it's one of our biggest markets, and most people there use Canva on their mobile phone, whereas in the States, there's a lot more laptop and desktop usage. So the way they use it, what they use it for is, is drastically different, and becoming a truly international product means that you have to customize all those different aspects so the templates, the photography, the marketing that we do, the emails that we send out, the types of social media posts that we do. So every time you enter a new country and a new language kind of multiplies the effort that you need to do to maintain everything. Extraordinary goal. And you will no doubt get there. Cameron Adams, Canva co-founder and chief product officer. Thank you so much for joining me on Build It, They'll Come. Thanks a lot, Helen. It's a real pleasure. I hope you enjoyed Build It, They'll Come. Let me know via Twitter at Helen underscore Daly. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know. Share it around your networks and I'd love you to give it a star rating to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turned their light bulb idea into an empire.